0: You know, I don't think there's anything more exciting than a young couple announcing to family and friends, we're going to have a baby. A few years ago, Patty and I were out for a walk when we received a text from my oldest son, Josh. The text didn't have any words in it, just this picture of his wife, Sonia. It says it all, doesn't it? I mean, we were so excited. This was their first child and our first grandchild. Then a couple years later, there was this from my other son, Daniel. Our laundry is about to get a whole lot cuter. (laughs) You know, there's nothing that brings more joy uh, to a family than to bear a new life in that family, to bring in a baby into that family. That's exciting. If you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? I mean, every parent knows the joy of bearing a life. But for some of you, you know the pain of letting go. I'll never forget Patty and I sitting down looking at the ultrasound, trying to make out the... form or shape of our baby when the technician said "Uh, let me go get the doctor a few minutes later the doctor came in and we heard the words that no parent wants to hear I'm sorry I don't remember what he said after that but I do remember holding Patty as we let go of our baby and wept together Maybe you've had to let go of a child. Maybe it came through divorce or adoption. Or maybe they ran away or maybe they passed away. Letting go is excruciating, isn't it? But, I mean, everyone of us in this room knows what it means to let go of someone or something that's dear to us. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a dream. So, so what do you do when you have to let go? What do you do when you know there's nothing else you can do? Well, that's what we want to explore this morning Uh, in Exodus chapter 2. In fact, if you wouldn't mind, turn with me there. Second book in the Old Testament, the second chapter, and we'll begin in verse 1. It begins this way. And a man of the house of Levi went and took a wife, a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child... She hid him three months. Now, Exodus 2 begins with the birth of Moses. And as a result, Moses' parents, well, they face a problem. It's an immediate problem. It's a life or death problem. I mean, Moses comes into this world in the midst of a crisis. You see, for the past 300 years, as Israel has lived in Egypt... Uh, They have grown from a a family of a mere 70 individuals into a mighty nation of hundreds of thousands, perhaps by now millions of people. And their explosive population growth has made Pharaoh quite nervous. I mean, he fears that they might form an alliance with, with Egypt's enemies. Or they might just pull up stakes and leave Egypt, you know, altogether. Either option would have been devastating to Egypt's economy. It seems that Pharaoh's not comfortable living with the Israelites and he's not comfortable living without them. And so he develops a strategy. It's actually a three-part strategy. The first thing he decides to do is he enslaves all of Israel forces them to engage in construction projects. And then secondly, he encourages their midwives to suffocate any male Hebrew child that was born. And when that doesn't work for him, out of desperation, then he orders uh, the Egyptians to take any male um, Hebrew child And throw him in the Nile as food for alligators. Now, it's into that kind of crisis that a man named Amron and his wife Jochebed give birth to a son. Now, you need to know this is not their first child. I mean, their, their first child, their firstborn, is a girl. Her name is Miriam. She's not quite yet a teenager. And then after that, there was Aaron, a boy. He's three years older than the baby. But but can you imagine bringing a baby and raising him in a world like I just described to you? Look back at verse 2. Notice what it says. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him, she had to hide him for three long months. Now, I do find it fascinating that Moses, by the way, you know Moses is the author of the book of Exodus, that Moses seems to want us to know that he was a good-looking kid. Notice what he says. He was a beautiful child. Now, that word beautiful is a difficult word to translate. It's kind of a a general word. It it means good, favorable, special, or or beautiful. Now, I I don't know what parent doesn't think that their baby is good looking. I've met some ugly babies in my time, but I've never met a parent that didn't think their baby wasn't beautiful. Now, the word beautiful, it probably means that Moses' parents saw something special in him. Now, we need to realize that this account of Moses' birth is told almost solely from a human perspective. I mean, that's the way we tend to come at life, isn't it? But you also need to know that underneath the text, that there is a divine dimension interwoven that really can only be seen through the lens of the New Testament. In fact, it's the book of Hebrews that kind of parts the curtain for us. I want you to notice what it says in Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. Now, don't let that slip under your radar undetected. That is a remarkable statement. Do you see it? Moses' parents had faith. They had faith. Now, what makes that statement so remarkable is that you need to know that Moses' parents were raised in an environment that was virtually opposed to everything God had taught the nation of Israel. In fact, Egypt's religious practices were so firmly entrenched into the life of the nation of Israel that two generations from this point you're going to have Joshua having to confront the entire nation telling them to put aside their Egyptian gods. In fact, I'd love for you to see exactly what Joshua says in Joshua 24. He says, Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve... In sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. I mean, you see, after 400 years of slavery, the gods of the Egyptians had become so embedded into the fabric of Israel's psyche that even after God leads them out of Egypt, after He manifests His presence to them, in the desert, and then gives him his law at Sinai. Joshua is forced to confront them, commanding the nation to set aside their Egyptian false gods. But through all of those years, it seems that Jochebed and her husband Amron, well, they remained true to the God of Israel. I mean, they had faith. But I also want you to notice that's not all they had. Moses' parents also had courage. In fact, I want you to notice what else the book of Hebrews says as we continue. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. And they were not afraid of the king's command. Now, I, I think it's obvious they had a lot To be afraid of. I mean, can can you imagine hiding a baby for three long months? I mean, while living in a a mud hut in a desert climate for that matter. I I mean, I I remember well the the birth of our son Josh, our firstborn. I mean, he didn't sleep through the night for six months. In in our mud hut, it was air-conditioned. And with the set of lungs that God gave that boy, I'm telling you, I can't imagine keeping him quiet for three days, much less three long months. Imagine what that must have been like. I mean, for almost a hundred straight days, they had to make sure that baby didn't say a word. Not a peep. Had to keep him quiet. Quiet. I mean, the stress on a mom during normal circumstances of bringing a baby home from the hospital, I mean, that can sometimes be overwhelming. Can you imagine how Jacobet handled it? I mean, she must have nursed the baby every hour, every half hour. I mean, I mean, wanted that baby completely satisfied, but knowing at the same time that at any moment an Egyptian could knock down their door, grab their baby... And use it for crocodile bait. Can you imagine what that must have been like? You talk about courage. You talk about faith. What courage, what faith these two must have had. But that's not all they had. In fact, if you turn back to Exodus chapter 2, in verse 3, notice what it says. And when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, and put the child in it, and lay it in the reeds by the river's bank. Well, it was inevitable. I mean, the day finally came where Jochebed knew she she couldn't take care of the baby and keep him quiet. I mean, she, she feared that she'd be found out. And apparently she developed a strategy. Notice what the text says she did. She developed, uh, figured out exactly what she wanted to do. Oh, She took a, a basket, kind of like the basket that you see there was made of reeds. She waterproofed it. Then she must have put some cloth or clothes in it or a towel or something to kind of cushion it. And and she took that basket and her baby to the one place that meant death to any young Israeli mom, to the Nile. Now, for most of my life, I pictured Jochebed, Kissing her baby goodbye, putting him in the basket. Setting the basket in the water and just gently pushing the basket out into the Nile until the current took it. And then it would begin floating downstream as she stood there and watched her son disappear. Uh, the, the whole time I, I pictured Doris Day singing in the background, K sera, sera, whatever she, will be, will be. But that's not what the text says by any means. I mean, look back at the text. It, it says, She put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. Apparently, she put the basket in the reeds, on the shoreline, in a specific place. She positioned that basket right where she wanted it. You see, Jochebed was not just a woman of faith. She was a woman with a plan. She knew what she was doing. She knew what she was up to. She was a woman with a plan. Now, you also need to know that it was common for an Egyptian, many Egyptians, to go down to the river, the Nile, and bathe ceremonially in the Nile. I mean, we see that happening today in India and the Ganges. Just like the Indians think the Ganges is sacred, the Egyptians thought the Nile was sacred. They thought it could impart longevity to life, uh, that it would improve fruitfulness. And so they would go down to the river and bathe. So what you have is under the most stressful of circumstances, Jochebed conceives a plan. Her plan is to put her child in the water and let him go. Now, the only way she could let him go is to put her her trust in her God. You see, she trusted that her God was in control of what seems like an uncontrollable situation she's living in. You know, there has always been a tension between planning and faith, hasn't there? There. Uh, But walking with God by faith doesn't mean you don't plan. It doesn't mean you don't engage your brain. It doesn't mean that you become passive, singing "Kesara, sera, sera," whatever will be, will be. Walking with God by faith means you do what you can, all that you can. But at the same time, you trust God to accomplish what He desires. You see, you walking by faith means you do plan, but you lean in to trusting God's heart that it is good at the same time. You know, after the doctor told us that we had lost our baby, Penny and I decided that we would try again. And after about a year, Patty became pregnant. And we were excited. And then three months into that pregnancy, or four months into it, I got a phone call at the office. It was Patty. She was crying. She said, come home now, quick. Well, I jumped in the car. I raced home as fast as I could, and I found my wife laying on the living room floor, writhing in pain. I mean, I picked her up. I put her in the car. I rushed her to the hospital. Emergency room docs started a morphine drip immediately, trying to abate the pain. It was so intense, and because they didn't know what was causing the pain, they kept her under observation. Well, a couple of days after that, they concluded that what Patty must—that since Patty was a, had Crohn's disease that what she must be experiencing is some kind of obstruction. But we've had obstructions before. I mean, never one quite like this. So for the next three months, Patty was as much in the hospital as she was out of the hospital. She was determined to hang on to the baby no matter what. But at a time when a woman should be gaining weight in pregnancy, Patty was losing weight I mean, as time progressed, I'd look at her she she looked emaciated, she started to look broken, her ribs were protruding from her side i I remember thinking she is just going to waste away well, after three months of just being in continual pain on. Easter, Sunday, Patty's water broke. Uh, six months before her due date. Well, they'd let me take Patty home for Easter, and I rushed her back to the hospital. We were met with a team of surgeons. Uh, Twenty minutes later, Laura was born. Six months premature — I mean, six weeks premature. Five pounds, two ounces. I could just set her in the palm of my hand. She was so small. But what the doctors discovered next shocked everyone. Uh, Patty had not had an obstruction for the past three months. They discovered Patty had had a ruptured appendix for three months. You don't live with a ruptured appendix for three days, much less three months. I mean, just by sheer determination, she had hung on to the baby. Her abdomen, it was filled with infection. Her intestines they were riddled with holes the the physicians the surgeons told me that they could make no promises they didn't know whether patty would live or die and to make matters worse they told me there was nothing they could do that patty's body would have to heal itself and all they could do is sew her back up well for the next three months Patty was in the hospital as much as she was out of the hospital again. She was dropping more weight. And I I found myself on my knees, begging God for the life of my wife and my baby. I, I, I remember wrestling with God as to whether His heart was good toward us. Could He be trusted? the same time though I remember learning to care for Patty in ways I never imagined when I said I do years earlier you see your greatest moments of growth will always come on the precipice of not knowing well I remember the doctors came to me and told me they didn't want Patty, to nurse, that she needed to focus her energies on getting better and conserve her energy, and nursing would sap her energy. And I listened to what they said, and in my gut I felt like this is not a good plan. You take the baby away from Patty, she'll give up. You see, the doctors knew medical protocol, and I understood why they said what they did. But I knew my wife. Uh, Nursing the baby, Laura, would be a reminder every day that her daughter needed her to survive. So I, I came up with an alternative plan. And I negotiated with the hospital. I proposed that they let me stay in the room, sleep on the floor with Laura and care for Laura and bring Laura to Patty as need be. You see, walking with God by faith, it doesn't mean that you don't engage your brain. It doesn't mean that you stop thinking. It doesn't mean you become lazy or you become apathetic. But, but acting foolishly, expecting God to bail you out of uh, things when they go awry, that's not faith either. That, that's presumption. Walking by faith means that I do all I can within my strength, but at the same time I trust God's heart toward me is good. And He'll accomplish what is best. You see, I, I think Jochebed knew that Pharaoh's daughter went to this spot in the Nile regularly to bathe. I mean, why not leave the baby in a basket there to protect the baby in a place where it could be found by the only person who could rescue the child, the daughter of the king that issued the edict. It was ingenious. Notice what happened next, verse 4. And his sister, now this is Miriam, and Miriam stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down and bathed at the river. And her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to go get it. So so Jochebed has a plan. She implements her plan. The princess finds the basket. And as a result, Pharaoh's daughter is faced with a predicament. What in the world will she do? Verse 6. And when she opened it, she saw the the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Did you notice the baby cried at just the right moment? I mean, she opens the lid of the basket, and the baby begins to cry. Uh, One commentator said this, God brings two things together that He made. A baby's cry on a woman's heart. The ancient historian Josephus gives us a little color commentary a little maybe a little insight he He says that uh the princess, not knowing what to do, passed the baby around to her handmaidens to see if any of them knew how to nurse a child. so it's at this point that the next step in Jochebed's plan goes into effect. So you got to imagine, you got Pharaoh's daughter there. She's looking down at this baby, crying in her arms, not sure what to do. And then Miriam, Moses' sister, remember she's been watching at a distance. Miriam happens to walk up and give a suggestion. Verse 7. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, uh, shall I go call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, Go, said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Now, Miriam must have been around 10, maybe 11 years old. Can, can you imagine how many times Jochebed must have rehearsed with her exactly what to say? Now, sweetie, sweetie, you can do this. It's got to be natural, okay? Just be casually walking by, okay? Now, don't look over there too soon. And when you do, look surprised. And go over there and and offer help. I mean, that was a lot to ask a 10-year-old to do. But but Jochebed had a role to play as well. I mean, she had to play the role of a respectful but disinterested female slave. I mean her hands couldn't shake there couldn't be a tear in her eye it couldn't be a catch in her voice it would have been a dead giveaway so Miriam goes and gets Jochebed notice what happens next verse 9 And Pharaoh's daughter said to her take the child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wage so the woman took the child and nursed him Now don't you find that absolutely amazing I mean, Jochebed not only gets her son back, she not only gets an unofficial sanction of protection from Pharaoh's daughter, but she gets paid to nurse her own son. That's amazing. That's just like God. You see, His heart is good. It can be trusted. But, at the same time, we need to realize... That when you let go, not all babies in baskets are rescued. Not all disease is cured. Not all relationships are reconciled. But if you can learn to let go and lean into God, trusting His good heart, God has a way of taking bad and turning it in to good you see in your life when things seem out of control when things are the darkest when you feel like god is silent maybe you feel like he's ignoring your plight it doesn't mean god's not working i mean god is always working he's always about the business of working his purposes into the events of life So walking by faith means trusting the goodness of God's heart in spite of circumstances to the contrary. So Jochebed gets her boy back, but it doesn't end there. Look at verse 10. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, because same because I drew him out of the water. Now, we don't know how long Jochebed got to keep Moses at home in the family. But we're given a hint in that verse, in verse 10. Look back at it. It says, and the child grew, and then she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. The Hebrew word grew there means to grow up. It was a word used to describe a a child, a little boy, as he was moving into boyhood, probably anywhere between three and six years old. So, I mean, it's possible that Moses was allowed to stay with his mother until he had reached elementary age. I mean, I think Moses stayed with his family long enough to become firmly established in his Hebrew roots. His parents got the opportunity to teach him about Abraham, Isaac, and Moses. He learned about the covenantal promises given to Abraham and the nation of Israel. But I think it was more than that. Did you know that the preschool years of a child's life are absolutely critical? I mean, psychologists tell us today with research, that uh, by the time a child reaches his sixth birthday, 80% of his personality is set in concrete. 80%. I mean, after that, all you've got to work with is 20%. That's it. How that child interacts with mom and dad during those early years. Not a daycare worker, but mom and dad leave an imprint on his life that follows him for the rest of his life. In fact, research shows parents that it's not what you teach your child during that time as much as it is what you are that has the greatest impact on your child. I'm talking about your actions, your attitudes, the tone that you have helps establish a solid emotional foundation that allows that child one day to leave home with a love that's secure, a hope that's significant, or a purpose that's significant, and a hope that is strong. I mean, when a child hears mom and dad openly talk about their relationship with God, when he feels loved unconditionally and delighted in by his mom and dad, and when he sees his parents love their neighbor as themselves, it develops a secure platform upon which he can be launched successfully. Successfully into a sin-cursed world. And because Jochebed learned the art of letting go and trusting God, Moses is given that and a whole lot more. But but what I want you to notice, did, did you notice that Jochebed has to let go twice? Well, first, when she put Moses in the river. Second, when she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. She had to let go two times. I mean, from where she sits... She has no idea God is preparing her son for a significant assignment. You see, Moses is destined to find his way into the royal palace. But his assignment goes way beyond that. You can see the details, or you can see it briefly in that last phrase in verse 10. It says, She called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. Now, Moses in Hebrew actually means one who draws out of the water. One who draws out of water. Not one who is drawn out of the water. But that same sounding word, Moses, in Egyptian means born one. Now, experts in the Semitic languages say what's going on here is a play on words by Mention his name here, Moses, God is saying, in effect, you Egyptians, you bore him out of the water, speaking of the Nile. But he'll draw Israel out of Egypt through the waters, speaking of the crossing of the Red Sea, an event that won't take place for another 80 years, hinted at right here in the text. You see, when life begins to feel overwhelming, when things look the darkest, we've got to remind ourselves that even though we can't see from where we sit, God sees things clearly. He's at work and He's orchestrating history and the events of life for His purpose, but also for our good. Father, thank You. Thank You for this story that we probably have heard a dozen times, maybe even as children. And it's a simple story, but it contains such profound truth. Would you help us be a people that knows what it means to loosen our grip and to let go? And then lean into you because we know your heart is good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to thank you for coming. and. We'll see you back next week. If you came, prepared to give. Uh, offering boxes out in the hallway. And we'd love to meet you. So drop by the hearth room, third door on the left. And uh, we would love to greet you down there.